Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather in person and online every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Now, last week we were 100% online because I had a COVID scare. Now, I tested negative. The test came back right about the time church was starting, uh, but I had all the symptoms of COVID, so to be safe and, uh, you know, cautious and all that, um, we, we went 100% online. I appreciated everybody who prayed for me, uh, people who uh, sent emails or texts uh, encouraging. I, I'm so thankful for that. Uh, we're good. Uh, I spent most of Saturday asleep. Uh, I spent a lot of Sunday asleep, um, and I was, I was tired. I was fatigued. It felt like I felt uh, when I got the, the vaccine, you know, that kind of knock you out sort of thing. Um, came back negative. Who knows what was going on there? But we're grateful for the opportunity that we have through technology now. Uh, hey, if it's snowing on a Sunday morning, we don't go, or what do we do about church? Uh, if there's a, a COVID scare, we don't worry about it. We just say, hey, we're 100% online this week. Uh, we do consider the online service a valid service. I, we put effort as a church, resources as a church into uh, our online offerings. And so, uh, welcome. We're glad that you are here with us at church. Uh, that being said, we, even if you're in person on a Sunday morning, we believe that church is more than just once a week attendance to a meeting. We believe that church is the family of believers gathered together in a local expression. And so we believe that, you know, we should see each other and be connected to each other more than just one hour on a Sunday morning. So we have small groups that meet throughout the week. Uh, We go through questions that are based off of the Bible study I'm going to teach in a minute. We pray for one another. We check in on one another. Stuff happens outside of those things. You know, I hear about like, you know, somebody uh, is in a small group with somebody else and then they're like, you know, through the week connecting with each other. How are you doing? Praying for each other outside of the small group. And we believe in that kind of vibrant, connected life together as believers. So if you want more information about our small groups that meet throughout the week, uh, you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com. I also want to let you know about a shift that we are making. We have, for the last year or so, had an emphasis on taking food donations for the Wichita Family Center. We have been asked to resume participating in the Backpack Buddies program, which is a, uh, it's a program, uh, if you don't know, that we had been a part of for many years. In fact, years before I got here as the pastor. And uh, so for, for, you know, I've been here five years, longer than that. We've been, as a church, we were connected to it. Uh, and then it stopped during the, the shutdowns in 2020, but they want to resume the program, and it's a way to make sure that uh, underprivileged kids in our community are not food insecure. Uh, there's a lot of kids in our community that the only decent meal that they get is on, at school. And uh, <laughs> uh, if you don't know, like basically they made, because of some federal grants, they made school lunches free this year. So my kids have been getting school lunches free and that's fine. It saves us some money, but it's not like, I'm not kidding myself. Like that's not the best meal that they get, right? It's not the healthiest meal. Angie's and I are, are decent cooks and we try to like have a good healthy uh, dinner and everything. But for some kids, the best meal, the healthiest meal that they get, maybe the, the only decent meal they get is at school. And so what Backpack Buddies does is it gets some, some food for them for the weekends, uh, for, you know, three-day weekends, that sort of thing. And 
we know that uh, nutrition and diet are actually linked. Studies have shown over and over again they're linked to education, and education is linked to breaking cycles of poverty in a community. And so as a church that's here for this community, we want to be part of that. Now, how does that affect you? We only talk about money when there's either a need or an opportunity to be generous. And, and so what we mean by that is a need. It's not like, oh, you know, the church needs more of your money. It's, it's, hey, there's an opportunity here. We believe that giving is an act of worship. And so if you can go to our website, faithonhill.com, and there's a give section, and you can make giving your, a part of your act of worship. Uh, I do it. I, my, my wife and I, we give our, the first 10% of our, first, you know, our, our wages to the church, and then we look for opportunities beyond that to be generous. So we are going to pay for the Backpack Buddies supplies. You know, all of the the food and everything that's necessary to do Backpack Buddies has a cost. The church is going to pay for that, but if you want to be part of helping to offset that cost, in addition to your regular giving, uh, you could go and you could do a, a separate gift and just designate it as Backpack Buddies, and we'll know that's what that's for. Otherwise, it's just going to come out of the general fund, which is supported by our regular giving as an act of worship. So that's what's going on around here at the church. Small groups, we're going to shift to backpack buddies, and uh, apparently I didn't have COVID. So we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew, starting in chapter 5 this morning, as we continue our study together in God's Word, and we start to look at the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew's gospel, there are five main teachings, sometimes called discourses, of Jesus. Uh, Matthew's gospel, of course, tells the story of the life and the work of Jesus leading to his death and resurrection on Easter Sunday. But within the gospel of Matthew, there's some narrative, there's some story, and then five times he stops for these large teaching sections. We're going to start the first of these discourses this week, the Sermon on the Mount. And it goes from Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. So it'll take us a few weeks to get through it. And then later on, we will come to Jesus's discourse on um, mission. And he gives that before he sends his disciples out on their first assignment. Um, And then there's what's called the parabolic discourse, which is a collection of the parables of Jesus, and then there is a discourse on the church, and finally a discourse on the end time. So we'll get to all those things as we get through Matthew. But for the next few weeks, chapter 5 through chapter 7, we'll be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And it starts off with one of the better known uh, teachings of Jesus, the Beatitudes. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount uh, contains some of the, the core uh, essential teachings of the Christian faith, the Beatitudes, um, the teaching on salt and light, uh, the, the Lord's Prayer. This is all in there. So there's some important, critical stuff that we'll be looking at the next few weeks. Now, it says that, verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Uh, in this case, disciples means both the 12 disciples, but in the larger sense, it means those who were following after him, wanting to be his disciple, uh, these larger crowds. And we know from the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, that there were thousands and thousands of people coming to see Jesus. And that's why he had to go out to a mountain 
or we, they called it a mountain. We would call it a hill, right? Um, you know, when I, when I lived in California, they had all these mountains, um, and, and I'd look at them, and I'd say, oh, that's, that's cute, right? Uh, England had that, too. When I lived in England, they would have these mountains, and, uh, then, and then I remember uh, I lived in England for about a year, and I had the opportunity to go to the Alps, so I flew from England to Munich, Germany, and then I got on a train, and I took the train down into Austria, went through you know, where the, the sound of music was, the whole thing, and I'm looking, these are mountains, those little hills over there, and that's kind of what we're looking at. He went to a hill, so he's up on this hill so that the crowd can gather around him, and he's easily seen, he's easily heard. Uh, later on, he'll have a similar problem, but there he's near the Sea of Galilee, so he actually just gets on a boat so that uh, he's kind of got this sort of platform and everybody gathers on the beach. He's just looking for way, what's the best place to go to. This, he says it, he began to teach. So this is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Like I said, it's going to go till chapter 7. And your Bibles will likely say, starting in verse 2, the Beatitudes. What does that word mean? It's one of these old words, Beatitude, that we don't use at all anymore but that would have been used back, you know, when they started translating the Bible into English. But the word beatitude just means a supreme blessing. That if you have these things going on in your life, that you are supremely blessed. And that's the big idea for this morning, supreme blessing. I want to read the beatitudes for us. He said, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are those are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way that they are persecuted, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So there are 11 blessings here. Blessed are you if. There are 11 of them. It's interesting to me, and there's some debate, you know, but as by my count, eight out of the 11 Beatitudes, eight out of the 11, blessed are you if, eight out of the 11 would be considered bad by the culture or the world around us, including some parts of what might be called Christian culture or church culture culture. Eight out of the 11. What do I mean by that? Blessed are you who mourn. That's the second one. Blessed are you who are persecuted. These aren't considered good things. Hey, how's your day going? Great. Why? I am in deep grief and mourning. Awesome. Hey, how's your week been? Fantastic. I have been persecuted all week. Man, you are so lucky. We don't think of it that way, do we? 
And the world around us certainly doesn't. Blessed are you who are pure in heart. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Jesus is speaking about righteousness in the sense of biblical righteousness. What God, through his word, has said is good and holy and true. And yet, if you hold to and stand on biblical righteousness even in some corners of the church, it's not considered a good thing. It's interesting to me that what God says is blessed is not the same thing that the culture or the world around us would say is blessed. If you would say, who is the most blessed person that you know? Who is the most successful person that you know? Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about John the Baptist. And how Jesus told his disciples, among all people who have been born up to this point, there's nobody greater than John the Baptist. But if you got a collection of the greatest historians of ancient history and said, who was the greatest person up to the birth of Christ? I guarantee that none of them would list John the Baptist even in their top 10. Which speaks to how God sees things, which by the way, spoiler alert, is true. Versus how we see things, which is almost certainly flawed. It's almost always limited. And quite often, that's like best case scenario, quite often we're just flat wrong. So this idea that eight out of the 11 blessings, like nobody's going to disagree with like, blessed are those who are merciful. Oh yes, that's true. Like even if we don't agree with it, it's one of those things that sounds nice, so we agree. That's like one of the like the three out of the 11 that we're like, oh, that, that's good. Blessed are the peacemakers. Sure, yeah, that's good. Eight out of the 11 would be considered bad. So if we want to live in the supreme blessing of God, we have to live in a way that is radically different from the world around us. Even the church culture that we might have grown up in. Who are these blessed people? I want to paraphrase what Jesus says. They are those who admit their spiritual poverty. That's what this blessed are those who are poor in spirit means. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every person has fallen short of the glory of God. Every person has sinned. The Bible says that there is none who does what is right. No one seeks to please God. Romans 8, you can check that out. The difference between a believing Christian and everyone else is we just admit it. That I am destitute, broken, poor in spirit. My only hope is Jesus. Now, why is it that multiple times already this morning I have said that in I have included Christian culture or church culture in the mix of those who would see the Beatitudes, the supreme blessings that Jesus talks about as bad things. Think about, from your knowledge and experience of reading the Gospels, who was it that Jesus had the strongest words for? We've already seen it from John the Baptist. It was the religious leaders. It was the religious leaders. Blessed are the spiritually poor. Blessed are the broken. Blessed are 
are those who admit their deep need for God. And then think about the most religious person that you've ever met. They don't even have to be Christian, right? Some of, the, some of my friends and acquaintances who are atheists are some of the most religious people I've ever met because they have a code or a system of, of this is what makes me good or bad. And since I live according to this code that I have decided upon, then I am a good person and I have no poverty spiritually or morally. I am as good as you can be. That's not what Jesus is talking about. The person who admits our deep need for God. The person who says, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. The person who says, who am I to stand before God if only there was somebody who could mediate for me? And that's in the Old Testament. A guy named Job said that. And in the New Testament, Paul wrote in Galatians that God is our mediator. He said no one can go and, and mediate between God and people. So God did it himself and became a man and lived among us. And Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, is that mediator between us and the Father. And if we admit that, we live in the blessing of God. But admitting that will make us not fit in with the religious nor will it make us fit in with the world around us who says everything is good. You know, we're just doing the best we can and we're, we're living the way that we think is right. Because to live in the spiritual poverty, admitting it, means admitting that everything around us isn't right and that we have a deep need for a Savior. The second mark of supreme blessing that Jesus talks about is those who admit their grief. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I've never thought that when I have been in a time of mourning, I was in a time of blessing. I think there's a couple of things going on. I think this might be the most multifaceted of all the Beatitudes. That there is a general promise of comfort for those who mourn. That in the, the darkest days, the darkest moments that you are in, that is not the end. If you can't see a way out of grief, Know that it is not the end. But I want you to think about living after God and what that would mean and why that would actually lead to mourning. If you were one of the early believers and you lived in, you know, you read the book of Acts, and within five years after Jesus' resurrection and the church begins, and then all of the Christians in Jerusalem, or at least a large majority of them, have to flee because of religious persecution. And then you read through the book of Acts, and you see a history of it. And then you read the history of the early church fathers after the apostles had died, and, and the intentional persecution of Christians and you realize there would be a lot of reason for mourning. There are Christians right now in, in different parts of the world who live in fear. In North Korea, it hasn't been safe to be a Christian forever. And they have to worship the Lord in secret. In, in Afghanistan, it was not safe, but it wasn't a death sentence. But now Christians in Afghanistan hide 
have to flee. Many have been martyred. There are places all over the world where being a Christian means knowing loss because somebody that you know is disappeared or is killed. We have brothers and sisters. Our conference of churches has, has sent financial aid to in Myanmar who are living in the jungle right now because the military junta decided to have a crackdown and they had to flee their village and they live in fear. There's mourning over what they've lost. But it's beyond that because I've never experienced it and likely never will. I, I, I almost, I feel like it's insulting to our brothers and sisters who experience true persecution to hear Christians in the West talk about inconvenience as if we are suffering persecution. But spiritual grief is very real. This last week, two, two of my oldest friends have kind of publicly said, we are not Christians anymore. They haven't actually said it. Like, I don't think they can bring themselves to say it, but in everything but, they have denied the faith. And there was mourning, there was grief as I saw this destruction in their life, this apostasy in their life. And as you watch people fall into despair, it should bring mourning and pain into your own life. I'm not judging them. I'm not being some kind of religious person like, well, look at those foolish people. They're not as good as me. If only they could stay on the true path like I do. No, I'm grieving for them because I know the destruction that this is and will play out in their lives, in their home, among their children whom I love. And that love for them is causing great grief and mourning. We look around, we have an awareness of the brokenness of this world and we see injustice and we see unrighteousness and we see immorality and it should cause us to grieve. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who are meek for they will inherit the earth. What does that mean? Blessed are those who walk in quiet strength. Our culture does not value meekness. In fact, the word has fallen out of disuse. It was still a word that was used even up until like my grandparents or my parents' generation. Uh, we showed the kids Wizard of Oz for the first time. You know, it's one of those kind of movies you feel like you have to show your kids at least once. And if they don't like it, that's fine. But like you have to at least see it once, right? You need to understand lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, like you need to see it. Dorothy introduces herself to the wizard as Dorothy the meek. It was a word that was known even among pop culture then. It's not now. Why? I think it's because we don't value it. Somebody who walks in quiet strength, somebody who walks and just walks in that kind of quiet humility, somebody who isn't the loudest, the biggest personality, the most like boisterous kind of thing, that's who we value. We, we, we love the, the people we perceive as the strong, the powerful, the big. Jesus is saying, actually, if you walk in that quiet 
strength. That is a blessed life. The Apostle Paul wrote to a church and said, as much as possible, live at peace with all men. As much as possible, live at peace with your community, with your neighbors. And there's some Christians that feels like they're just out to make war with their rage at the community and the culture around them instead of living in quiet peace as much as possible. To live in supreme blessing means in part to walk in that quiet strength. It doesn't mean we're pushovers. It doesn't mean we compromise. It doesn't mean that we don't say, hey, what's going on here? But this sort of militancy that has evolved into Christian nationalism doesn't fit with these ideas of blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who are meek. It doesn't seem to connect. There's a disconnect with what I'm seeing in parts of church culture and what I see in the Word of God. And it's in those moments that I have to trust blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The next thing Jesus says is a mark of supreme blessing. The blessed people is those who want God's ways. Those who want hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is a personal thing. This isn't me going, you need to do better, and you need to do better, and that person over there isn't doing it right. It's a personal thing. I hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. I want God's ways. And I do. I I want to see God's ways expand in my own life and in my family and in our church and in our community. I want my kids to grow up in in a, a place that is growing in right ways, in the righteousness of God. But it's a personal thing. Do I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or do I give myself over to rage? Do I give myself over to judgmentalism? Do I allow the immorality of this world and this culture around us to have hold in my life? Those are all valid questions to ask. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You want to live in the supreme blessing of God? you won't do so following the morals of this world. And I mean that across the board. Well, you know, it's all those people down in Hollywood. Really? Because Nashville seems pretty bad too. Like, there's this idea that, like, there's these, you know, godless liberals down in Hollywood. Oh, I pray that God does His work down there, and I'm, I'm thankful for the work of good, solid churches that are down there doing the work of God. But I also know that there are godless conservatives in other parts of our country. And one of the dangers of Christian nationalism is they're told it's, it's all okay. But the immorality of this world is across the board. And for those of us who say, I want to live in the supreme blessings of God, it's to walk away, turn away from this world of sin right and left, old and young, urban and rural, whatever, and to say, I am going to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. Whatever anyone else wants to do, Lord, do that work in me. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Those who walk in mercy. It's an interesting thing. He says, you know what the most well-known Bible verse 
in America is, it is not John 3.16. It's judge not lest you be judged. Now, everyone takes that verse out of context. They just say, hey, don't judge me, man. It's in the Bible, right? Every, <laughs> every non-Christian I've ever met knows that verse. Uh, second most is there's a verse in Genesis that talks about every good herb, and then every pot smoker I know knows that verse as well. But the point is, blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Judge not lest you be judged. What that verse means about no judges, if you're a judgmental person, then when it comes your turn, people will not show mercy to you. If you're an unmerciful person, when it comes your turn, people will not show mercy to you. You want to live in the blessing of God, show mercy to others. And this is an opportunity in this moment of frustration. We are frustrated at everyone. Everyone's frustrated at whoever. You're frustrated at you're a conservative, you're frustrated at the liberals. You're a liberal, you're frustrated at the conservatives. You're a Christian, you're frustrated with other Christians. You're not a Christian, you're frustrated with Christians. You're, you know, uh, old, you're frustrated with the young. You're young, you're frustrated with the old. So on and so on and so on. We're all frustrated. Masks, no masks, whatever. Everyone's frustrated at everyone else. This is an opportunity to show mercy. Instead of sitting in frustration, which leads to judgment, I can say, Lord, bring me to a place of showing mercy. And the blessing that comes out of that is that when my time comes for needing mercy, it's just universal truth, right? Basic human nature. When my time comes for needing mercy, who's, who's more likely to receive mercy, those who have been merciful or those who have not? Jesus has just given a basic truth there. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It's one thing to want, to hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. It's another thing to experience it. The two big words every Christian should know, justification and sanctification. Justification, what's what happens when you, when you get saved, when you become a Christian. When, when God in, says, you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, so I will remove your sins, and in my book you are right before me. That's justification. Sanctification is the process as followers of Jesus where we have been made right before God and God says, now you're in my family. I'm going to start making you one of my family and I'm going to make you like Jesus. And, and he begins that work of holiness in our hearts and in our lives. And, and it's a changing work. It's a powerful work. Blessed are those who are pure in heart for they will see God. One of the big questions that Christians throughout the ages have wrestled with, and I believe we are beginning to wrestle with in a new way in this generation, is, is somebody actually saved? Somebody prayed a prayer when they were 14. Somebody was baptized at youth camp when they were 16. Somebody was very involved in church at one point, but now they're just totally checked out. I don't know somebody's heart. I know that there are fakers in the church. And there are people that we will get to heaven one day and they won't be there and you will be shocked because they fooled everyone except God. And I also know that God's grace is not dependent on my works. So there will be people that are in heaven and you're going to look around and say, how did they get here? And it'll be the fulfillment of the scripture that says it is not by works of righteousness that I have done but according to God's mercies that I have been saved. 
But this verse cannot be ignored. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. How do we become pure in heart? And the only answer is the cleansing work, the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ in our lives, that we are set apart. We talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit. We are set apart by God, filled with his Holy Spirit, and we are made more like Jesus. And we see this in Scripture, and we see this experientially, historically. We see this around us where somebody is saved. There's not a question that they believe in God. But at some point, some second work of grace seems to happen. And something clicks, and all of a sudden, it goes from zero to 60 like that, and they're, they're just working on another level. And so I believe that that is the filling of the Holy Spirit. I believe that is the work of sanctification that God does. Do I believe that it happens once, and then I never need God to fill me with His Holy Spirit again? No. But I believe that there is a moment of saying, God, I surrender my life. I, I was talking with a brother this morning, uh, older older brother in, in the faith, and he was saying how, like, in the early 80s, as a, as a guy in college, he was sitting in this airport, and he was just praying as he was waiting for his flight, and he realized, like, Lord, I believe in you. I believe I'm a Christian. I have faith. I believe I'm going to heaven, but I've, I don't think I've fully surrendered my life to you. Do what, I, I'm going to heaven, but while I'm on earth, do whatever you want. And he surrendered his life, and he says, never been the same since. A change came over him. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This isn't peacekeepers. This isn't people that are just going to do whatever. What will make you happy? How can we just keep the peace, keep the status quo? Let's keep the, let's keep the tension under the surface. These are the people that dig into it. You know what? There's issues among our families. There's issues among the church. I said a minute ago, everyone's frustrated with everyone else. What are we going to do as peacemakers to make true peace happen? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If we believe and affirm, no matter how loving we are, no matter how grace-filled we are, no matter how much hate is purged from our hearts, if we believe and affirm what God has called true and right, the world around us will hate us. They'll either hate us because they have taken something that God says is immoral and they have said it's good, or they will hate us because we refuse to join their cause, or they will hate us because we will say, you have done all of these earthly things to be right, and yet you lack Jesus. There will always be that rejection by the world of true followers of Christ. I don't want to be somebody who goes around talking about persecution over silly things, because there will be enough persecution that comes over real things. Blessed are you when people insult you. I've never thought that. Blessed are you when people persecute you. I've never thought that. Blessed are you when people lie about you. I, I, I would paraphrase this to say, blessed are you when you suffer for the right reasons. There's no blessing for suffering for being a jerk. And there are Christians who are jerks. Christians who are obnoxious. And then they go, see, I'm being persecuted. No, you're just being obnoxious. I had a friend who was at Bible college and they had like, this is back in the day before cell phones and they had like, you know, one kind of communal phone and you could use it to get calls from home or you call your parents and there was a, a gal 
um, that was calling her parents and, and her roommates on the floor overheard a conversation where she says, it's great, I'm being persecuted for my faith. Like, you're at Bible college in Canada, so it's extra polite. People who think that they're being persecuted, it's like at best you're being inconvenienced. This is blessing if you're suffering for the right reasons. They lie about you. They bear false witness. They insult you. Why? Because of righteousness. Now, these are the supreme blessings. Those who walk in the holiness of God, those who live in acknowledging the brokenness of this world around us, those who stand quietly strong in the face of resistance and persecution, Doing these things leads to our supreme blessing. But why do we do these things? How is that all lived out? Verse 13, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. I, I, I'm, I cook at home. I love cooking. I always have some salt and pepper right next to the stove so I can throw some in the dish and get it going. Right? But if, if the salt gets wet... It becomes totally useless. It loses its ability. You know, it needs to, be, needs to be dry. It needs to have seasoning and flavor. He says it's not good for anything. It's thrown out. You are the light of the world. A town on a hill cannot be hidden. It's not a secret base. You know, I'm a, I'm a, it's personal faith. No, no, Jesus said our faith is for everyone to see. People don't, verse 15, light a lamp and put it under a bowl. You don't turn the light on and immediately cover it. You know, you don't turn the lamp on in your room and then throw a blanket over it. That's not the point. And all of this talk about living in supreme blessing is not so that we can just live in our own little bubble and not live it out. There's a reason for all of this. What is that reason? He says in verse 16, In the same way, let your light shine before others so they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So they might see your good deeds and they might glorify our Father in heaven. The purpose of living in the supreme blessings, these beatitudes, is not about me just having a good old time here on earth, but it's about others. That others will see what God is doing in us and they themselves will call upon Jesus for their salvation. Right now, I've been tracking a group of churches in the south and a group of churches back east that are having scandal after scandal after scandal. Why? Because they put people in leadership who are not living in these things. People in leadership who are not pure of heart. People in leadership who were not living in spiritual poverty. They, their teaching was the opposite of blessed are those who mourn. And they are reaping what they've sown. And the world is looking at those churches and saying, I don't want any of that. One of the things that you'll hear Christians talk about is the need for revival. And I agree, America needs revival. But that's going to start with us. Not with them, with us. That as Jesus does his sanctifying work, setting us apart, making us more like him, the purpose isn't just so that we become spiritual super people, but so that we go out, we take what Jesus does in our minds and in our hearts and in sometimes in our physical bodies and the work that Jesus is doing and then we go out 
so that it's seen by the world around us. Living in the supreme blessing of God, you know what, you know what it does? It brings blessing to other people. If my wife and I are walking in God's ways, it will bless our children because they will grow up in a home without strife, without violence, without you know, trauma, all of these things that some of us grew up with, right? If, if, our, if our relationships with our coworkers, if our relationships with the communities of how we operate as a church, it doesn't just affect us, it affects others. Again, I want to read it, verse 16, let your light shine before others so they may see what God's doing. I'm paraphrase there. See your good deeds. See what God's doing and that they may glorify your Father in heaven, that they may call out for the same salvation and forgiveness. All of us are spiritually broken. Every person is poor in spirit. The blessed people are the people who admit it. And if we can walk in these blessings, I believe God has a work for us to do to bring others into that same place of acknowledging where we're at and calling out to Jesus for forgiveness. And if you're watching this morning and you say, I don't know if I've ever called out to Jesus for forgiveness. I don't know if I am in the kingdom of heaven. I don't know if God has forgiven me. This is a moment to call out and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I believe that you are my Lord. I believe that you are God. I believe that you will save me and bring me into everlasting life. And not just in heaven, but here and now. And for those of us who are believers, but we say, you know what? I want the fullness of God. Then this is a constant prayer. Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Make me aware of my need for you. And bring me to a place of purity of heart, purity of intention, so that I might walk in your truth. These are prayers that I'm going to pray a prayer, but I want to invite you just to call out to God wherever you are at. And let me pray to close our time together. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for the work that you do in the lives of people, that there is no one who is too far gone to be saved by you. And I pray that as we are made aware of our sins, that you would bring us to a place of repentance, of crying out for forgiveness, and that when we are saved, we believe we are welcomed into your kingdom that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us power so that we might live in your victory in this life as we await the life to come. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you have any questions, if you pray to prayer, if you need prayer, you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. If you want to be connected in life-giving community, you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for more information. We'll see you next Sunday at 10.30 a.m. God bless you.